0: Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Derek Healy and on this episode I'll be joined by Justin Bowie and Ramsey Jones to examine and explain the past week in Scottish politics. But first, let's have a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, read for us by Alex Watson. The Scottish Tory party conference kicks off in Aberdeen today, with Boris Johnson giving his keynote speech. Douglas Ross will give a shorter address than planned to the audience tomorrow after he lost his voice due to falling ill. Russia Today has been banned from broadcasting in the UK in a blow to Scottish political veterans Alex Salmond and George Galloway. Ofcom said they had made the decision to revoke the state broadcaster's licence immediately after the channel was previously taken off air. And Russia continues to bombard Ukraine, with missile strikes pouring down in Lviv and shelling around capital city Kyiv. But British intelligence suggests Vladimir Putin's invasion has only made minimal progress this week. Thanks, Alex. Now, let's turn our attention to what's been happening closer to home. I'm joining you from the splendour of my hotel room in Aberdeen as we get set for the Scottish Conservative Party Conference at p and Live. Regular listeners will be aware that we had scheduled a leader's interview with Douglas Ross for this week, but unfortunately Douglas had to pull out due to ill health. We then plan to have an interview with former Conservative Party Vice Chairman Andrew Bowie, but I'm afraid we had a few technical gremlins with that one as well. We will have some audio from that later on in the show, but thankfully we have Ramsey Jones joining us to uh, go over everything party conference really. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ramsey was former Prime Minister David Cameron's special advisor on Scottish affairs during the 2014 referendum and today is my own personal hero for stepping in at very short notice. <laughs> Ramsey, we heard this week that Douglas Ross has been suffering with a sore throat. Uh, he's had to pull out of all his media appearances this week and we'll be doing a, a shortened version of his speech on Saturday. Saturday. He's not the first leader to lose their voice ahead of a party conference, but I think the Tories will be hoping to avoid a repeat of that infamous Theresa May performance. It's obviously a complete disaster for a party leader to miss a recording of the Stushy, but how big a deal is it for them to make that speech and give a good account of themselves at conference?
1: Um, Of course it matters. I mean, it's a bit like um, uh, Prime Minister's questions or First Minister's questions, isn't it? You know, a lot else goes on in the world of politics but sometimes people only tune in to the big key note moments i mean i saw douglas actually earlier this morning and he asked me to pass on the following message to you but hopefully by tomorrow his voice <laughs> will be back and he's ready to, to make his speech. Um, from what I understand, you know there's various versions of the speech being written from the sort of thirty-five minutes down to the five minutes. But they're quite hopeful that you know antibiotics and everything else will kick in because for a leader as well, it is a big set-piece moment. Um, it's the stuff of politics, isn't it? When all these spontaneous adlibs that you've practiced carefully. Can flow out from the from the podium store as you try to capture the you know the mood of the hall and the, and the mood of the nation. Um, and your know, Douglas is a good orator, and I'm sure um, he'll want to give it a go, virtually whatever you know state he's in, and just nurse his voice over the next 24 hours before he can do that. But uh, you're right; I've seen some interesting uh, conference speeches. I still remember the uh, previous quiet man of politics, Ian Duncan Smith, and his uh, conference speech that he gave um, when the The quiet man turned up the volume. Uh, I've seen some barnstormers. I've seen some right turkeys as well. Let's see what tomorrow brings.
0: Now, I know journalists always get very excited about party conferences, but I do wonder sometimes how much the wider public are really paying attention. Uh, What do you think the the Tories need to get out of this conference, heading into May's council election?
1: Oh, this is the great dilemma for all political parties are facing just now, isn't it? I mean, the bandwidth, because of... Obviously, first of all, a pandemic, but now um, the war in Ukraine, the dominance that understandably has right across the media and in people's capacity for news makes it really very hard to break through at all. And I, and I anticipate, frankly, other than a few pars inside newspapers and bulletins, um, still what will come out of here is no doubt You know, the Prime Minister and whatever he says about Ukraine later on as well today, because it's the subject that no one can afford. So for Labour last week, for the Scottish Tories this week, sometimes all you can actually do is paint some mood music and maybe try to land one overarching message. Um, You know, the banners here are all about, you know, Scotland's real alternative and with an, an eye on May, they'll be trying to say that, listen, yes, there's a pandemic. Yes, there's terrible things happening uh, in Ukraine. But actually, you know, the bread and butter day-to-day politics have to go on. We have this precious democracy. Um, we are the, currently the opposition will be the Scottish Tories pitch. You know, we need to make gains in May and we're on the route to the next Hollywood elections with even greater ambition. So they'll unveil, if you like bread-and-butter day-to-day policies, I think some stuff on education today, really just hoping that some of that gets through, but also of conference, of course, is about trying to keep um, that hackneyed phrase, the party faithful, in the right mood and the right attitude, so as they'll go out and pound the pavements uh, over the next few weeks. May is going to be interesting, and I think all parties are facing enormous problems just now, though, breaking through against the absolute din of noise from the big-ticket issues happening out there.
0: Speaking of that Labour Party conference, Justin, you joined me there earlier this month. We spoke previously in the podcast about how there was a bit of optimism and enthusiasm in the room for that, and perhaps largely just because it was a first chance for everyone to, to get together again after a very long time. The Conservative conference seems to have been besieged by problems going in, You know, the questions over whether Boris Johnson will appear, Douglas Ross now being ill. What's the mood been like heading into this conference? Do you sense that there is that same sense of optimism?
2: Well, I think it's very interesting when you look at what the situation was like five or six weeks ago. I imagine that a lot of the Conservative Party might have been dreading this conference due to the divisions between the Scottish Conservatives and their uh, UK counterparts. However, obviously the crisis in Ukraine seems to have given them something different to talk about and something that lets them move past the Partygate scandal. I imagine that they will be wanting to use this conference to present a united front to try and heal the divisions that have developed in recent months, because as you mentioned with the Labour conference, one of the key messages from Labour was that they are now united as a party; they have a coherent single message. I think the Conservatives will also want to put across the same idea. Um, and it was very, very interesting at the Labour conference when Keir Starmer was setting himself out as the voice of the union, claiming that the Tories are trying to or 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 inadvertently damaging the union. I imagine they will want to pick up that mantle as the party of the union again at this conference and try to set themselves out, as Ramsey says, as a credible alternative to the SNP.
0: Well, our colleague Rachel Emery spoke to former Conservative Party Vice Chairman Andrew Bowie about some of the major talking points heading into the conference. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the audio on this is a little bit choppy, so please do bear with us. But here's what he had to say about Douglas Ross and his troubled relationship with Boris Johnson in recent months.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, Douglas took a decision uh, as he was well within his rights to do. He was absolutely right, as I've said. I think, to with the position we are in now, uh, with the you know huge issues that we face on the continent and within this country, and determined that now was not the time uh, for a leadership election. We have to stand united behind the Prime Minister and government as we tackle one of the uh, the, the, the the foremost aggressors that the world has, has ever seen, certainly in recent history. And so, I think Douglas did the right. thing. In removing his letter and uh, uh, giving support to the prime minister, and he's handled it very well indeed. Yeah,
0: Ramsey, I hope you can make most of that out. Okay, um, Andrew Bowie, they are saying that Douglas Ross has done a good job handling the questions around Boris Johnson's leadership and making the the right decision and withdrawing that letter calling for him to resign. Do you agree? There's there's a there is definitely a mood just now of sort of um,
1: not now, Cato, to borrow a Cluzo phrase. Um, that I think is fairly deep within the party overall. And actually, I think arguably a lot of the, the general public outside the political bubbles would also say not now. Um, that's not to say not never. And I think we have to be careful how this is positioned because let's say in a few weeks' time, there is, fingers crossed, a resolution uh, in Ukraine. Let's say the police then come back and slap on some fixed penalty notices. Let's say the full secret Gray report comes back. The capacity for the public mood and people to then get back, if you like, to politics as normal and issues as normal and problems as normal is still there. But right now, there's a palpable sense of not now that um, I was interested as well about reflecting back on the Labour conference about, you know, the sort of call for unity and everything else and will the Tories try to reclaim the party of the union. I actually think if the Scottish Tories are smart this weekend, they don't talk about independence. Because the point is, this is not a time, and polls are showing that to this week, that the public mood is not for an independence referendum anytime soon. They'll want to force the Scottish National Party to talk about independence, and for the Scottish Conservatives to talk about the bread and butter issues on the one hand, and the global crises on the other. Um, So that dynamic, I think, is going to be interesting as well. I actually think the PM's probably going to end getting a good reception here, because you know, arguably, the refugee issue aside, for which more people blame the Home Office than necessarily number 10, people would argue that on the world stage, he has done a good job and his ratings approval in Ukraine are probably only bettered, well, they are only bettered by Volodymyr Zelensky. So it's a strange, strange world we live in here, and I think from having been the one who wasn't wanted, he's going to end up probably getting quite a rousing reception. Strange times.
0: I mean, we've spoken a little bit in the past um, about May's council elections coming up and uh, how many party activists are going to face a very tough time in the doorsteps, thanks to Boris Johnson. You know, rather than discussing a Tory platform for local government, a lot of them will be spending their time fielding questions about Partygate, Tory sleaze, you know, Russian money sloshing about in the party accounts. Probably less of that um, now with Ukraine than, than would otherwise have been the case. But should the Prime Minister be spending his time in Scotland apologising to party members for his behaviour and what went on at Number Ten?
1: It's um, he'd probably argue he sort of has done, um, but whether these were apologies or non-apologies or sorry. I sort of got caught. I'll leave listeners to decide what they are themselves. Right now, if it were the local elections, I actually think Scotland and most of the UK would be quite a non-event, not in in so much as I think everyone would probably come up pretty much as they were, because I don't think there is an appetite and a mood for change because of pandemics, because of the Ukrainian war. But a lot can happen between now and May. A lot of water can flow under a lot of bridges between now and May. And you're right, it could well be as April winds down and the May elections come and other things have settled down, the public's attention do go back to Party Partygate and Russian oligarchs and all these issues. That's when it gets much harder, you're right, for Tory activists on the doorsteps. Local elections are weird things, though. You know, you, you, we would all maybe hope they were fought on emptying the bins and potholes, but we know that people's view of the parties on a bigger stage certainly... Um, does affect um, both the way they'll vote, but crucially, and I think this will be the decisive factor, it, it affects the turnout as well. And I think the May elections will be a battle for turnout amongst the parties to get their people out.
0: We heard at the start of the year that the Prime Minister was going to be setting this conference out. Why do you think he changed his mind on that? Um, I think he probably in his own mind was always coming. And he's
1: quite a belligerent bulldozing through any issue sort of politician. Uh, and arguably, if you like, the circumstances have aligned to make it possible for him to be here. I mean, I always think there would have been some kind of address, even if it was only a virtual one, which, in fact, the Chancellor uh, is doing a virtual address to the conference today. But um, I think what we've seen from the Prime Minister over the last three weeks is somebody who is absolutely rolled his sleeves up and wants to be out and about and, and doing everything, you know, flying all around Europe, doing extraordinary number of meetings making sure that over the course of today and tomorrow he does two conservative conferences so I suspect he always was insistent he was doing it but circumstances have now allowed that to happen in um, a much more collegiate way because again I go back to not now Cato in terms of all the other issues they can be put on the back burner certainly as far as the
0: core of the party is concerned. It'll be certainly interesting to see later on how much, you know, it is water under the bridge if, if some of this does get kind of dredged up again in the coming weeks and months. Um, but with an English Prime Minister coming to Scotland, there's been an interesting debate raging this week about Anglophobia. A Murray councillor made headlines all around the UK when she said she gets more people contacting her about anti-English hate than Islamophobia. Meanwhile, the former presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament, Trisha Marek, sparked anger after saying St Andrews is not a Fife University. I followed a satirical article which described criticism in Nicola Sturgeon and Scottish independence. Uh, some have described the article as misogynistic and offensive. Justin, you wrote that story for us. Can you take us through it?
2: Yes, well, this was an interesting one. Uh, and as you see, a kind of wide debate started, sparked on social media essentially afterwards. The article itself got a wide range of responses. It was clearly meant to be sat- satirical. If you were to criticise it, you could say that the article did employ a lot of lazy lazy stereotypes surrounding traditional Scottish things and just things that we would see as very much associated with Scottishness. However, it was an article in a student magazine, and I think some people were just very surprised at the extent of the response from that. And obviously, Trisha Marrick, a veteran of the SNP, a former presiding officer in Holyrood, ended up having a go not just at the article, but at St Andrew's University itself, So described the university as anti-Scottish and also said it was not a real Fife university, which were uh, very, very strong words. And that uh, obviously then got a kind of strong reaction on social media as well. So yeah, very much a case where an article that was in a student magazine has ended up, I I suppose, getting blown out proportion, might be the best way to put it.
0: Yeah, I should say that Trisha Marek declined to comment um, when approached by the Courier, but we understand that she's going to be meeting with with students and staff at St Andrew's University. You're a veteran of the 2014 referendum. Did you think then that we'd be still going over this kind of thing in, in 2022? I didn't on the
1: day of the referendum, but within a week I feared we might, because mm. um, <laughs> the, the speed at which people wish to reopen the debate again was extraordinary. This is one of the biggest nonsense stories I have heard in a long, long time, from thin-skinned people who really do need to, and should know quite better. Look at the way we all poke fun at other people. Yes, perhaps slightly cruelly and wrongly sometimes, but generally felt as just a bit of a bit of banter and humour. It happens all the time. But I, I really think the reaction to that piece, however well or badly written it was, was just completely over the top and outrageous. And, you know, I know Trisha, and I actually think... If she, in her, in her own mind, she probably knows she got that wrong. Um, the, some of the people I admire most in life are those who can smile and laugh at themselves because that's the greatest way to defuse anything like that. But if you, if you take offense, sometimes, sometimes it's justified, but sometimes it actually says more about you than it does about the so-called offender.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's there's a difference, isn't there, between maybe what was said there and an Anglophobia um, when we're hearing about you know from, from Murray Council um, some of the kind of concerns that have been around there. Do you think Ramsey that there is a, an Anglophobia issue in Scotland at the moment? And if there is, how how widespread is it? Do you think?
1: I I, I genuinely don't. I mean, I you know travel fairly widely. I'm up and down. You know, Aberdeen this week. I'm in Edinburgh quite a lot. I live in the Borders. I'm down in London quite a lot. And actually, you know, maybe it's just I'm I'm meeting the wrong people, or maybe I'm actually meeting the right people. But actually, I don't think. It, it's an issue. I mean, there's always been the Scotland England thing, isn't there, in sports and anything else. You know, anyone but England sort of mentality. But that was as far as it went. You know, what's being suggested here is much more deep rooted, much more systemic, and much nastier. Uh, from the reports from the Murray side of things, let's leave like St Andrews University aside. From this, it's not something I recognise. But that's not to say it isn't happening. It might just be that I'm either ignorant to it or it's it's, it's washing me by. But if it is true, even if it's partially true, I abhor it with every sinew of my body. And I say that as a very proud Scot whose father was English and who hates prejudice in any form it raises its head.
0: Justin, would you agree with that?
2: Yes, I mean, it's certainly something that I haven't noticed that much myself. I have English family myself. I imagine that most of us do. We will all have friends from England or friends who stay in England or v- vice versa. I've always had very, very positive experiences. You obviously have the kind of rivalry in sport and in football, but that is always very much felt. It's, it's more banter than anything else. It's the way that any sport rivalry is going to be heated at times, but after the game, everyone should be capable of getting on. But there are obviously problems that do exist. And even if we are not seeing them, it, There are definitely people, I suppose, whether it be in Scotland that don't like England, whether it be people in England that don't like Scotland. So it certainly is a problem that is there and it needs to be tackled. But certainly day-to-day, it's not something that I would say I notice a lot. Just one thought, if I
1: can chuck in on that, reflecting on it. The Scottish National Party are very, very worried about ALPA and the more extreme elements of nationalism and how they portray themselves and how they relate to themselves. And I actually think that... um, they know that, you know, if you want to be the right kind of nationalist, that has to be about what you are for, not defining your, yourself by who you hate and who you're against. So I actually think the SNP need to make sure that those who are, are, are portraying, you feel like, the, the wrong kind of nationalism are called out. That's why you see, you know, Pete Wishund and others absolutely taking on APA and trying to put them down and squash them. As any part of the independence campaign, so I think there is a small, persistent, pernickety, um, you know, ignorant, uh, completely hateful element. But I think it is tiny, and I think we need to be careful that we don't blow it out of all proportion and somehow portray to the world that Scotland is full of, of you know, uh, Anglo haters because we are not.
0: Sure, it's very interesting, and I'm, and I'm sure as a topic we'll come back to again. But I mean, I remember even during. So the pandemic, you had the discussions of whether or not there would be some kind of COVID border put in place and uh, and some of the reactions to that. And it was quite interesting to see how some people interacted with that debate. Um, speaking of speaking of COVID, Nicola Sturgeon has announced a change to, uh, or announced that there won't be a change, actually, sorry, I should say, to, to mask rules this week. Um, you covered that story for us as well, Justin. What has she announced and what's the reaction been like? Well, essentially what has happened is the vast majority of COVID
2: restrictions have now been scrapped in Scotland. So in line with England, the travel rules changed today. They have been relaxed. Other smaller rules that are also changing, pubs will no longer need to take the details of customers when they come in. That will also apply to just you know any other hospitality venues that would have previously had to take customer details. However, the First Minister said that she would not remove um, the mandatory face covering rule. So this is essentially one of the last kind of holdovers of the restrictions or of of curbs of some sort that remain in place. Uh, The First Minister indicated that this is likely to change in two weeks. Her reasoning was that due to case numbers being high at the moment, the government would feel more comfortable if if face coverings remained in place. I don't imagine this will be a hugely controversial measure. I I believe most of the public still generally support mask wearing. If people are going into shops, they understand that it's a sensible measure that it can protect other people. What people on the other side of that will say is that case numbers are high anyway. Is this having that much of an effect when everyone is mingling constantly anyway? People are always in close contact. That will be the other side of the debate. I believe there was a very mixed response from hospitality groups who, who want to see this gone completely. I imagine for some people, you know, psychologically, there might be that idea when this, when this rail is finally gone, it will signal not necessarily the end of the pandemic, but the end of these precautionary measures that we have Become so accustomed to living with as well. So I suppose there's that side of it where I, you know, where masks have become so symbolic as a part of the pandemic that we, you know, we see people out on them every day. There may be that aspect of it um, where when that rule ends, people will possibly be relieved. But then many people may continue wearing masks. And in addition to that, when the when the mask rule ends, that will be the government ending the rule. I imagine hospitality venues or shops or public transport will still be able to Implement it as, you know, as whether whether it be private institutions if they want. So it doesn't necessarily mean that places will not be able to implement mask wearing. I suppose it just means that the government will no longer be able to legally enforce it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've seen obviously cases seem to be surging at the moment in Scotland and hospitalizations seem to be on the rise. I mean, just anecdotally, I came up in the train to Aberdeen last night. And I think it was probably 50-50 for people wearing masks or not wearing masks. Um, people in shorter journeys seemed to be not bothering with it. People for a bit longer seemed to be sticking with it. Well, I thought it would be the other way around. Um, Ramsey, the, the Conservatives were quite critical of the First Minister's decision to hang on to the mask rules for a while longer. They said that you know she should put her trust in the public to get this right for themselves. Where do you stand on this one? I to be honest, I wasn't too fussed. I mean, I think because it was a couple of weeks, most
1: of the public would just shrug and say, "Right, well, it was a couple of weeks, and then it's gone." And um, mm. I mean, we, the, the truth is, the, the, the first minister is somebody who's driven by sort of precautionary principle in quite a lot of what she does. Also, I suspect there's also the desire just to be a little bit different sometimes, because you know you have to demonstrate the point of devolution is your ability to do things differently. When actually, if you look back over the whole two years by and large all parts of uk have done by and large the same things at by and large the same times um because our circumstances have all been very similar at times scotland's had a better record on some things at times a worse record right now it's a worse record in terms of infections so i sort of i'm i'm really quite horizontal about it frankly but you know governments sometimes want to be a little bit different and i'm sure sometimes opposition parties want something to say i think the public out there are saying two weeks time we move on where i live i end up doing most of my shopping in england in berwick upon tweed it's it's now um you know just advisory down there and the the fall off in people wearing them within the big supermarkets is is you know palpable you can see it day after day fewer and fewer doing it and on the train you were just talking about there listen the old trick you have a cup of coffee in front of you whether or not you're drinking it you don't have to wear the mask and even if you don't and you've got nothing to drink no one's enforcing it it is it was the law that required the public to do it
0: voluntarily so um two weeks time we're free of it great and, and do you notice know a difference at the moment when you're, when you're going and you're shopping? Is there a difference between you know popping over the border?
1: Uh, yeah, the, the, there is a difference. I mean, I, I do think that when something is uh, advisory, uh, um, it gives you green light for some people not to comply and just to be selfish uh, when something is mandated, even if it's not actually enforced with a £200 fine as you might be on the railway. But, you know, some people just have a natural affinity to keeping to the law and not wanting to break a law. So I have in the last week or so actually seen a difference yes either side of the border but in two weeks time we'll all be in the same boat again and um, LNER and others will have to stop making announcements
0: as the the train leaves Berwick-upon-Tweed to trundle up to Aberdeen That's interesting we'll we'll certainly be keeping a close eye on it Um, but for now that's all for this week Um, so thank you to Justin Ramsey our producer Chris and of course you for listening at home We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands, so that you can be better briefed. The Stushy is
2: the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities, so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following the Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.